Well, get your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we've been talking about miracles. And what I've really felt like needed to be said, and I'm trying to say, but one of the things that I think we all have to decide, and I've said this, I think, every week, and that is that the burden of faith is always on the believer. And so we have to decide whether we serve a God who used to do miracles or a God who does miracles. Now, we have to decide whether we believe that, not whether we think that. And what I mean by that is sometimes I think because there's tradition and church and the Bible, we'll say, yeah, yeah, I believe God does miracles. But the question is, are you believing him to do miracles? Right? Because it's our faith that really brings the power of heaven into our lives. It's our faith that moves everything God's provided into our life. And so sometimes I think we, we mentally agree with things, but the Bible says we have to believe. And so I'm not asking you if you think God can do a miracle. I'm asking, do you believe that he does miracles? Or do you believe he used to do miracles? And nowadays we just think he does miracles. But we have to decide because what we believe will determine our experience with God. What we believe about him will determine. So we've been talking about miracles, and I've been challenging us to say, sometimes it's comfortable to pull back and say, well, I don't want to get my hopes up. You know, I, I believed before, and it, it didn't quite work out, and I don't want to get my And what I say is, you know, Jesus came to get your hopes up. There's an empty tomb so that you can get your hopes up. Right? He wants us to get our hopes up. He wants us to believe him. He wants us to trust him. And he wants to do more in our lives than we could ask or imagine. And we talked about that last week because that's based on the power that works in us. So God wants to, to do a whole lot. And so we've been talking about miracles. And, and this week, I, I want to talk, continue. I want to talk more about healing, but I'm going to relate it to something we do a lot of. And sometimes it's a little bit of a tradition, and that is the Lord's Supper. We call it communion, the, the Lord's table. And everybody, we, we usually do that at least once a month here at Pathway. We have a time where we take the Lord's Supper together, and, and that's the juice and the bread. But I want to talk about it a different way because I think that part of that really speaks to health and healing in our bodies, and I don't think we always understand that. How many know health is the greatest blessing you could have? It's really not finances. I mean, finances are good. But his health is the greatest blessing, right? If, I, if I'm sick or, or, or struggling in my body, it doesn't matter how much money I have. I can't really enjoy it. I can't do what God's called me to do. And so health is a tremendous blessing, and that's a blessing God has paid to give us. It's all the way through the Bible. In fact, we believe here that we're just not called to live and die and go to heaven. I always... Now that I think about it growing up, you know, that was kind of the good news of the gospel was you could say a prayer and then you could die and go to heaven. So the good news is you could die. Praise the Lord. But when we really study the message of Jesus, it wasn't a message of I've come that you could die and go to heaven, but rather I've come that you would have life and have it abundantly. In other words, God has called us to purpose. He's actually not called us to die and go to heaven. He's called us to live and bring heaven into the earth. That's the good news of the gospel. I grew up in a church. We used to sing a song, and I've said this many times, but it was everybody can be happy over there. And I thought, if God is really big and powerful, why can't we be happy here? I'd like to be happy here. How many would like to be happy here? Yeah. Why not be happy here? Why wait till we're over there? It's like all the good stuff is after you die. Well, if that's the case, let's get the Kool-Aid out and drink it now. And now later when we pass out the juice, you're going to be looking at me, no, I ain't taking that. Down. Ain't no way, man. 
<laughs> I'm out on this one, preacher. I know what's going on. No, but that's not what God's called us to. God's called us to live and bring God's kingdom on the earth. Right? He said, go and preach the gospel, heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely you give. And so God's called us to, to something, but in order to take over the world, as we call it, in order to take over the world, you, you need to be healthy. In order to take over the world, you, you need to prosper. Right? I think this is why you see every time God's trying to get somebody to take over the world, he's, he's giving them health. He's, he's prospered. Go all the way back to Abraham. Abraham conceived Isaac. He and Sarah conceived Isaac when, when they were... A hundred years old. That's supernatural health. That's a miracle. Right? Sarah, Sarah, in her older age, as we would call it, had kings that wanted to take her into their harem. They wanted to marry her because she was hot. And she didn't have any like cucumbers and seaweed and whatever you smear on yourselves nowadays. There's no plastic surgery or anything like that. She just had divine health. The Bible also says Abraham was wealthy in silver, gold, and livestock. So what do you see? Abraham, take over the world. I'm going to make you healthy and I'm going to prosper you, right? The children of Israel, they went from being slaves to being wealthy and healthy in one day. In that the Bible says when they left Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians. So they were, they were blessed financially that God provided. And then it says there wasn't one sick or feeble among them, right? What's the New Testament say? I think John said, above, above all, I wish that you would be in health and prosper as your soul prospers. And so God wants us to be healthy and God wants to prosper. So no, I, I don't preach super faith, radical prosperity stuff. You know, if you're watching TV and someone says you give $133 and you can have the blessings of Psalm 133, turn it off. That's foolishness. That's prostituting the gospel. God, Jesus paid for it. You don't have to. But at the same time, God does have some ways. That's, that's why I've challenged everybody in our church to, to tithe, to give the first 10% of their income. Because God has a way. He says, when we tithe, he opens the windows of heaven. He pours out blessings. And so God wants to prosper you, and there's a way that he does that. And God wants to heal you, and there's a way that he does that. And so I want to talk about the Lord's Supper, and I want to talk about the two elements of it, or, or the two symbols that we partake of. And I want to put it in a context that I think sometimes is, is overlooked. And sometimes I think we do things out of tradition, like we take communion because churches take communion. And we forget the power of it. When it becomes a tradition, we forget the power of it. And you need to understand, Jesus started the Lord's Supper the night that he was betrayed. We'll read it in just a minute. But the night that, that Judas was going to betray him, he sat his disciples down and he had this meal with them. And Jesus wasn't a traditionalist. In fact, he was a radical. He went against the religious people. He went against the traditions, right? I want to make sure that the Lord's Supper um, doesn't just become a ritual for us or a tradition for us, but that we really take it knowing and understanding what it is. And so if you're there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says this, For I received from the Lord that which was also delivered to you. Now, now Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. And, and if you have a Bible where the ink changes colors, meaning sometimes there's black, sometimes they're red, then you're going to notice in a minute it's going to switch to red because Paul is quoting Jesus. And you can read that for yourself in Mark and Matthew's gospel where, where Jesus takes the bread in what we call the Last Supper. But he says, For I received that which is also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, now it changes to the words of Jesus, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Someone once said, how, how often should we take of the Lord's Supper? I said, often. Because that's what it says, right? And, and it should be taken often, but it should also be taken with understanding. And that's what I hope to give you. I call this message today healing bread. Healing bread, because we're going to talk about the two symbols, the two elements, as we call them, the cup and, and the bread, and we're going to put them in a context and explain a little bit more about them, because sometimes I feel like sometimes we kind of put them together when really they, they're two different things. Does that make sense? And so first, uh, let's first talk about the cup. The cup, Jesus said this, and Paul quotes it. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. A new covenant. Why do we need a new covenant? Because the old one wasn't as good, right? So your Bible has an Old Testament and a New Testament, and some people say that coincides with an old covenant and a new covenant, and that's close, but not exactly right, because the old covenant kind of ends at the resurrection of Jesus. That's when the new covenant begins, Right? But there is an old covenant and a new covenant. Let's talk about the old covenant. How did that work? Well, God's people had sinned the same way people have sinned today. And God needed a way to postpone judgment for their sin. And that's exactly what the old covenant was instituted to do. In fact, the old covenant had a lot of the animals. You can go read like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, and those books. And you can read about all these sacrifices and you can read about the day of atonement. And you can read about the, the, the blood of bulls and goats and, and, and sheep and lamb and all these other animals that had to be sacrificed. Obviously, pedo wasn't, wasn't a thing back then. And so you can read and, and it talks about Passover, and Passover, we first see Passover when, when Israel is actually in bondage in Egypt, and it's the plague of the firstborn. And uh, it was the 10th plague, and that was when God said, okay, I'm going to send the death angel, and I'm going to kill all the firstborn. And he tells Israel, he said, but you kill a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost. And where I see the blood, then the angel will pass over. In other words, judgment will pass. And people say, well, how, God is so mean. He kills the firstborn. No, here's what you need to understand. The firstborn belongs to God. He was just taking what was his, right? The firstborn is the first. Here's a biblical principle. It's all throughout the Bible. I don't have time to tell you, but the first is always God's because the first is the best portion. God always asks for the best. He always asks for the first. And he says the first has the, rede- the power to redeem. It's the redemptive portion, right? That's why Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. That's why he was the first fruit of God, right? He was the first and he redeemed the rest. That's why when we give the tithe, if we give the tithe, we give the first 10% of our increase because the first one has the power to redeem the rest, It's all throughout the Bible. And so God took the firstborn because the firstborn was his. But for Israel, he said, where I see the blood on the doorpost. And so they would mark it. They would one across and one down. What does that look like? It's a cross. So where I see the blood, then then judgment will pass over. 
And so that became an annual feast of Passover. And it had the Day of Atonement where every year they were, God would accept sacrifices from the priest to atone for the sin of the people. But what you need to understand is that, that, that the sacrifices didn't take away sin. They just delayed punishment. Uh, believers, people, the people of God who died before Jesus, the Bible says they went to a place called Abraham's bosom. And then the Bible says when Jesus was, was killed and buried, that he went and preached the gospel to them so that they could go to heaven, if you will. Right? But they were like in a holding tank, if you will. Are you with me? And so, and so in the old covenant, the, the, the sacrifices couldn't take away sin. But, but now we have a better covenant based on better promises because now the blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The blood actually takes away our sin. In fact, we could read a couple of scriptures. Hebrews 8, 6, it says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. Hebrews 9, 11, it says, Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come, the new covenant, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. In other words, in the old covenant, the tabernacle was a tent. In the new covenant, you're the tabernacle. You're the temple of the Spirit of God. You're the house of God, right? It says, that is not of this creation. Verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with the blood of Jesus, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal Redemption. In the old covenant, the covenant was between God and man. And man kept messing up. Right? And so in the old covenant, your relationship with God would be up to how well you could keep all the commandments and do all the sacrifices. Right? Aren't you glad you didn't have to bring livestock with you to church this morning? Wouldn't that be awkward? Some of your HOAs would not allow that. I'm glad too, because I don't really care to help you slaughter hundreds of animals this morning. Isn't that great? You didn't have to, you didn't have to bring those sacrifices, but in the old covenant, you had to, in the old covenant, God dwelled in a tent and in the old covenant, you had to offer these sacrifices in the old covenant. Your relationship with God had to be maintained by you. But in the new covenant, you have a high priest. The old covenant, the priest stood daily ministering because the work was never done, because the sin was never eradicated. It was just covered over. It was, it was postponed or delayed, right? But in the new covenant, the Bible says, Hebrews 10, Jesus sat down. Why did he sit down? Because the work was finished. When he said the work was finished and he said on the cross it is finished, he really meant it was finished. He maintained your relationship with God because you can't maintain your relationship with God. It's a new covenant on better promises. It means that my behavior doesn't earn me a relationship with God and my behavior doesn't disqualify me from a relationship with God because now salvation is by grace through faith. Well, I would clap. It was good information. <laughs> Do you understand that now God and Jesus made a covenant and by faith I enter into the covenant they made and I become a benefactor of everything Jesus paid for. And it's not based on me and my righteousness. It's based on him and his righteousness. And now I receive, the Bible says, righteousness as a gift, not as a goal. I'm not trying to be seated with Christ. I am seated with Christ. He took my place. I get his place. 
I'm not living for victory. I'm living from his victory. It's a, it's a new promise. It's a, it's a new covenant. And it's a lot better than the old one. And that's what the blood is. When we take the cup, we're taking the new covenant. Now, hey, this is about Jesus and God. And, and my part is just believing in Jesus. And when I believe in Jesus, I benefit from this covenant. And that's what the blood is. The blood is for the justification of our sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so, so Jesus takes, he takes the cup. And what's the cup for? It's for the remission or the dismissal of sin. His blood cleanses us of all sin and makes us right with God. And so we're taking communion, and that's what the cup's for. Then what do we need the bread for? Right? The blood is all we need to forgive sin. That's all we need. If we want to die and go to heaven, all we need is the blood. We just need the cup. We take up the cup, and that's our justification. It means we're right before God. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. And the blood justifies us and cleanses us, makes us holy and right with God, makes us a partaker of his nature, makes us a partaker of his holiness, Peter said. So if this is just about forgiveness of sin, we only need to take the cup. But the night that Jesus was betrayed, before he took the cup, he took the bread and he broke it. So we need to understand what the bread is for. In fact, Paul quotes him and in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, he had give, after he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. So, so we have a cup and we have some bread. We have blood and we have the body. And the blood is all that is needed for forgiveness of sin. But yet we have this bread. What's the bread for? Well, in Mark chapter, chapter 7, there's this really cool story. Mark chapter 7, verse 24, it says, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre and he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence a secret. Stupid Twitter. (laughs) 25. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. Now time out. You have to understand, and, and I don't have time to teach this, but there are demons, right? I know it's convenient not to believe in them, but they're there just like God's there, whether you believe in him or not, believe it or not, God's existence is not dependent upon your belief system. And it's the same way for the demonic. And people say, well, the demons went away after Jesus rose again, show it, show it to me in the Bible before you believe somebody's crazy out of context scripture. Because if you'll read your Bible, you'll find, no, 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 no. They're very much loose in the world today. In fact, they will not be bound and thrown into the pit until the millennial reign of Christ is over. So Jesus is going to come back. We're going to live a thousand years and then he's going to get rid of the demons. I've had a lot of people say, oh, there are no demons. Okay, that's a good theology. Why don't you find that for me in the Bible? Right? But not only are there demons, but, but what this tells us, and we see it several times, honestly, in the Gospels and even in the New Testament, that people had what looked like sickness, but it was brought on by something demonic. Uh, This girl today would have been diagnosed with epilepsy. In other words, seizures, convulsions, those type of things. But it wasn't really epilepsy. It was a demon. 
Jesus many times healed people by casting out spirits of infirmity or spirits of sickness, right? And so here we have this lady and her daughter is, is sick. She's an epileptic and she comes to Jesus And verse 26, it says the woman was a Greek born in Syrophoenicia. In other words, there are Jews and there are Gentiles. In other words, she was a Gentile. She wasn't a Jew. And she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. And then Jesus says something very interesting. Verse 27, it says, First let the children eat all they want, he said. For it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. Well, that sounds pretty harsh. In fact, in fact really, that, that, there was a racial issue and that was kind of... The, the way racism talked back then, that there's the Jews and there's the dogs. Uh, uh, Paul uses dogs uh, in a similar context, but he uses dogs as unbelievers. It sounds pretty harsh, and I think in some ways Jesus is, is kind of testing our faith a little bit, right? I mean, he's using the vernacular of the day, that's true, but it's a little bit, it's a little bit harsh, and I think in a way he's testing her faith just to see where her faith was and to see if she was going to be offended or not. You know, it's really hard to get a miracle if you're going to live offended. <laughs> you can hang on to that offense as long as you want to. But it's really going to make it hard to go forward with God. Right? And I think most of the time people don't even carry their own offenses. They carry other people's offenses. But I think Jesus tested her faith and he said, hey, it's not good to give this to dog. And then, and then watch, her, watch her response because she doesn't get offended at all. I mean, this is like, Jesus called a lady a dog. She didn't get offended and neither did anybody else. I, I can put a, face, a, a Facebook post out and I get hate mail. It's amazing to me. And she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child, found her child laying on the bed, and the demon was gone. Do you, remember, do you understand she prophesied what Jesus was about to do? He came for the lost sheep of Israel, but we got grafted in. Gentiles got grafted. She actually, in some type of foresight, understanding, or maybe just faith, she said, I don't need the bread. I just need a crumb. And I love the story and I love to talk about it more, but here's the thing that I love about this text and why I'm bringing it to you because here's what Jesus said. This lady's daughter needs to be healed. She needs healing. And this is what Jesus said. Healing is the children's bread. Bread speaks of provision. Here's what he's saying. Healing is provided to God's kids. Amen. There's a bread that heals. It's the provision of God. And she's outside of, she's not a Jew, she's a Gentile. And, and she's coming for healing and Jesus saying, what you're asking for is provided, but it's provided for the children. And she said, I may not be a child. I don't even need the bread. I just need a crumb. And Jesus said, in one version, he said he marveled at her faith. And he said, go, your daughter's healed. There's a bread that heals. There's a healing bread. When we're taking communion, the blood is for forgiveness, but the body is for wholeness, for health, for healing. The body is for healing. Um, I think so many times Satan 
how many know you can't do what God's called you to do? We talked, you can't do what God's called you to do if you're not well, right? Most of you know I'm, I'm battling with something in my body. My body's not 100%. And I live mad. I live frustrated because I can't do. Weekends are harder for me than they used to be. And I'm believing God to heal my body. But right now, I can't do everything that I want to do because I'm limited physically. And I'm like, God, this is how I know you're supposed to heal me now. Because you call me to do more than what I'm able to do right now. Right? Healing is a blessing. But I think one of the things that the enemy has done is he has gotten the church through tradition to divorce the body from the blood. And sometimes the way that looks is we just merge them and glump them together as one thing when they're two. And we take the blood for forgiveness and we take the body for forgiveness. Right? And all throughout the Bible, when, when you read it and you study it, God always puts salvation and healing together, but he doesn't group them up, but they're always together. They're two distinct things, but they're always together. Right? Look, look at Isaiah 53, verse 5. There's a lot in this verse. Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, But he was wounded for our transgression. Time out. Let's stop there. He was wounded for our transgression. That wound is a piercing. Where, where there's a piercing, there is blood that is shed, and that blood was for our transgressions, our trespasses, our sins. That's, that's what it means. In other words, that blood was for everything we have done wrong and ever will do wrong. That's our actions, that's our sin. Right now, if God just wants us to die and go to heaven, we don't need the rest of this verse because that right there is enough to get us to heaven. Because that first phrase, he was wounded for our trespasses or our transgressions. That's enough to take care of sin. Are you with me? Are you breathing? Touch your neighbor and make sure they're breathing. So he was wounded for our transgression. He was pierced for our transgression. He, he was wounded for, for the things we've done wrong. And if all this is about just forgiveness of sin, that's all that needs to be in Isaiah 53 verse 5. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, he was bruised for our iniquities. Now that's something different. There's no, there's the, blood, the blood isn't shed when you're bruised. The blood is under the skin. So, so there, was a, there was a wound for stuff outside of the body, and there's a wound for stuff inside the body. See, he was wounded for our transgressions, meaning that he paid for everything we've done wrong. But he was bruised for our iniquity, means that he paid for what caused us to do wrong. He was bruised, you could say it this way, for our freedom. Like he forgives what we've done wrong, but he paid so we don't have to keep doing the wrong thing. He paid not just for our sin, but he paid to free us from the inward bending of our soul towards sin. Can I ask you a question? Did anyone here ever have to take a class on how to sin? I could get in school, how to sin 101. If you do really well, you can graduate to how to sin 201. Did anyone have to teach anybody how to sin? No, we were good at it, weren't we? Like naturally, I just know how to sin. Someone cuts me off. I know how to respond. <laughs> and it isn't blessing them in Jesus' name. That took some redemption to get to that point, amen? The other day, <laughs> the other day I, was, I was backing in here at the church. We were moving something around and 
All of a sudden, this guy's coming through the parking lot 100 miles an hour. I don't know where he came from, and he's honking at me, and he's giving me this look and some sign language that I think meant something. Now, how many know back in the day of knowing how to sin, I would have had some things that I could have helped him with. But thank God, he was bruised for my iniquity. So I was able just to laugh because I thought, man, you look dumb. You know, I just, <laughs> right? And so he was wounded for our transgression, but he was bruised to free us from the inward bending of our soul, the brokenness of our soul that causes us to sin. He didn't pay just for what we did. He paid for what caused it. My God, that's good preaching. And then he goes on. Then the chastisement or the punishment of our peace, this word is, is literally, you could put prosperity of life. It's not just talking about money because you can be wealthy and not be prosperous. Those aren't always the same thing. It's talking about being able to prosper, prospering in my life, prospering in my calling, prospering in my job, prospering in my family, and yet prospering in my bank account. That's true. God wants to bless us. But it's the totality. How many, you know, sometimes Jesus pays for us to prosper and he pays for healing and then we argue against it. Have you ever thought about that, how weird that is? I don't know about you, but anytime I bought one of my kids a gift, they've not yet to argue with me about whether they should take it or not. And sometimes we do that with God. Like God saying, hey, I want to prosper you. I want you to be in here. Wait a minute, God, there's strings attached. I'm not so sure. Is this the right doctrine or not? <laughs> Why not just say, I'm not going to resist anything you want to do in my life. I don't want to resist anything that you pay for. And so this is the punishment for our peace. And then it gets to the body. And by his stripes, we are healed. Salvation and a whole lot more and healing in one verse, in one place, at one cross. I'll read some other verses. Uh, Mark chapter 2 verse 9 tells this really cool story where we see salvation and healing together because Mark chapter 2 verse 9 is the story of a, of a paralyzed man that his friends wanted to get to Jesus and, and they couldn't get in the house so they dragged their paralyzed friend up on the roof. It's amazing they didn't kill that guy. They dragged him up on the roof and Jesus is preaching and teaching. All of a sudden there's a skylight and Earl comes through the roof. Right? That'll get your attention. So here they are. They've carried their paralyzed friend. They've got him up on the roof. They open the roof, right? They lower him down. And then Jesus looks at him and says, Earl, your sins are forgiven. Well, hold up a minute, Jesus. That's good and all, but Earl's still paralyzed. Right? Like maybe Jesus, I thought you had discernment. I'm not sure you're up to what we're up to. I'm not sure you're tracking yet. And then Jesus says this. In Mark chapter 2, verse 9, it says, which is easier to say? Do you see that? Which is easier to say? Let me say another. Jesus said, which is easier to do? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take your bed and walk? He said, but so that you know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, get up and walk. Which is easier? Jesus said, no difference, really. See, see, back then, before the cross, Jesus said, I'll heal to prove I have the power to forgive sin. Nowadays, he says, I forgive sin so you'll know I have the power to heal. Which is easier to say, Jesus said. Jesus didn't break a sweat. 
Let me read another verse. Psalm 103, verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his... How many know God has more than one benefit? Isn't that good? He's got a great benefits package. If you're ready to retire from sin, he's got a great benefits package. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all our iniquity, that's all our sin, and heals all our disease. Right? One verse, salvation and healing. Let, let me read another one, 1 Peter 2.24. Who himself bore our sin in his own body on that tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Salvation and healing. By the way, Peter's obviously quoting Isaiah 53. Isaiah said, you are healed. He's looking and he's prophesying toward the cross. He said, by whose stripes you are healed. Peter is preaching from the cross. He's saying, by whose stripes you were healed. Right there. That's where healing was purchased. Right there. That's where salvation was purchased. Right there. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 14. Jeremiah says, heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved. For you are my praise. All throughout the Bible, you see, they're two different things, but they're always put together. It's one cross. It's one price. But it's a lot of benefits, the psalmist says. And I think sometimes when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper, sometimes we don't understand that, that there's a cup, and that's for justification, but, but there's also bread, and that's for healing. And so let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11, because... I want to put some things in context for you. First Corinthians 11, we stopped at verse 26. We'll pick up at verse 27. It says, therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body of the Lord or the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup for who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. I'll explain all that in just a minute. But look at verse 30. It says, for this reason, it's the only place in the New Testament where there is one singular reason for sickness. So, so Paul's saying, here's a solution for you. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. That means die prematurely. So Paul's saying, he's, he's trying to explain something to help us, and it relates to the Lord's Supper, and he's saying, hey, here's a reason why believers, because the context is believers, here's a reason why believers are weak and sick and even dying prematurely. How many, how many would say, I'd like to know that reason? Four of us, praise God. How many would like to know the reason why believers are weak and sick and dying prematurely? Because Paul's trying to help you. Paul's doing what I'm doing. I came today to help you. I'm your friend. And so let's talk about this first. I want to I kind of back some things out and explain some things because I grew up in a church and maybe you grew up in church and, and, and the people, some of the people I around were, were a little bit legalistic. They, they meant well, but they were a little bit legalistic and they would, we would take the Lord's Supper and in the original King James it said, if you, if you, if you partake unworthily, Unworthily. And, and I would hear something like this. I'm holding the juice and the bread, and they're saying, Now, before, before you take this, you need to examine yourself. Because if there's any sin, there's anything, if you thought anything bad, if you did anything bad, if you, any type of sin in your life that you haven't asked forgiveness for, and you take it, you're drinking judgment, just like Paul said, because you're taking it unworthily. Now, man, for a 14 year old kid, that's scary. 
Because I'm like, well, what if I can't remember what I did? I sinned so much. Like, oh, God. And they're sitting there saying, now, if you take this unworthily, you're drinking judgment. I'm like, oh, Jesus. Now, I'm 14, but I'm shaking like this because I'm like, oh, God, I don't know what I did this week. Dear Jesus, I'm 14. I sin every 12 seconds. You know what I mean? I just, I'm just trying to figure it out, Jesus. And I'd literally be holding it this close to my mouth, and I'd try to get my mind real clear, and I'd say, Jesus, forgive me of everything, whether I know I did it or not. <laughs> oh, thank God. Because I want to die, Jesus. This is Welch's, but it sounds like death to me. Right? They'd say, because you don't want to take an unworthy man, you're going to drink judgment on yourself. Well, first of all, let's look at that word judgment because it's not sentenced to hell. It's actually talking about the judgment of death or sickness and disease. And communion is not something I take to get judgment on me. It's something I take because judgment has been removed from me. Jesus became a curse to free me from the curse, Galatians 3 says, because it says everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And Jesus became the curse to free me from the curse. Well, what was the curse? Well, the curse, first of all, was, was death. And what does death? Death is separation from God, but death is also sickness and disease and poverty and all those things. And Jesus became a curse to free me from that curse. So if Jesus became a curse to free me from that curse, how could communion put me under that curse? Right? Do, do you remember? In fact, Jesus says something in John, uh, John 3, verse 14. It says, as Moses was lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus and, and, and it's a flashback, if you will, to the Old Testament. I think it's in Numbers where, where uh, the children of Israel had, had turned against God. And they were under the old covenant, so judgment came. And judgment came in the form of snakes that would bite them, and they're dying. And God speaks to Moses and says, Get a, make a bronze serpent, put it on a cross, and raise it up for the children of Israel to be healed. Think about it. Bronze serpent on a cross. Now, what's the symbol of medicine again? Is it a serpent on a cross? And so he says, here's the thing, judgment, judgment is coming. It's upon them because of their unbelief. But if you'll put a serpent on a cross and raise it up, then when the children of Israel, when they look at it, they'll be cured. And then Jesus says, just like that serpent was raised up, so the son of man will be raised up. What was God telling Israel? He's like, hey, judgment came and I've come to free you from the curse of your sin. And judgment came and now sickness is upon you. But if you'll look at the cross, there's a cure on the cross. And then Jesus tells Nicodemus, judgment's on the world. But the Son of Man is going to be lifted up on a cross. And the cure is on the cross. Do you know why it was a bronze serpent? Because bronze signifies judgment. And you know what God was saying? I'm going to judge sickness on the cross. I'm going to judge sin on the cross, but I'm going to judge sickness on the cross. And what Jesus said, I'm going to be lifted up and I'm going to be lifted up on the cross and God's going to judge sin on the cross, but he's going to judge sickness and disease on the cross. There's a cure on the cross. And so Paul's not saying that if you drink communion, you're under the curse. 
He's not talking about if you take it in an un, if you take it unworthily. In fact, we read it, but two places he says it, and the the the, the more accurate translation is in an unworthy manner. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. See, unworthily is talking about me. No wonder communion can't benefit us if we're all focused on us. Communion is not about us; it's about Jesus. See, unworthily talks about my condition, but, but the actual context is unworthy manner. That talks about the way, the way you're taking communion. In other words, they were taken in the wrong way. And, and I don't know if you know this, the Corinthian church was screwed up, right? I mean, when you got to re- write a letter to tell one of the leaders he can't sleep with his stepmom, they're a little jacked up. If you feel jacked up today, there's hope for you, right? So... And so Paul is actually writing these letters for correction. So he's actually, believe it or not, he's talking about the Lord's Supper and he's correcting them because they're doing it in the wrong way. So let's find out how they were doing it. Well, verse 20, if you back up on the other side, verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. That's at the church. And then Paul says what some of you are thinking, what? What? If you're not saved yet, you might be thinking, I want to go to that church. (laughs) What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? You want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. Here's what Paul is saying. They're coming into the church to take the Lord's Supper, but they're not taking the Lord's Supper. They're just bringing a bunch of bread and wine and having a party. Right? And he's saying, you're not coming to take the Lord's Supper. You're coming to get drunk and have a party. And, and the wealthy people are bringing all, these, all this bread and all this wine, and they're having a party and getting drunk, and the poor people are having nothing. And Paul's saying, this is an unworthy way to do this because you're not focused on the right things. You're not looking at the right things. So when he's saying, in an unworthy manner, it's because they were doing things in an unworthy manner. That's why he says, let a man examine himself. He's not saying if there's sin in your heart, he's saying, what's your motive for taking the Lord's Supper? What's motivating you to do this? Is it because you want to connect with God and honor what Jesus has done? Or are you just having a party and calling it communion? And so he's saying, hey, if you take it in an unworthy manner, and then he says, and this is why. Many believers. See, the world is under the judgment. They're under sickness and and sin and death. Jesus is the way out, right? But he's saying, hey, believers shouldn't be weak and sick and dying prematurely because Jesus paid for their wholeness. But he said, for this reason, many believers, he's telling the Corinthians, hey, these believers are weak and sick and dying. For this reason, and, and he gives us the answer, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Well, why? Why are they? Why are they sick and dying? He says, for, for if, they, if they eat and drink in an unworthy manner, they're, they're drinking. In other words, they're staying under the, the world's judgment or the judgment that's on the world. And here's why. Because they're not discerning the Lord's body. See, the blood makes me perfect. The blood is an instant and permanent work of salvation and justification. Hebrews 10, 14, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And so when I take the cup, 
That's a celebration of a finished work. But the bread is about an ongoing thing in my body. And he's saying, when you take the cup, that's, that's a finished work. That's justification by faith. But the reason people are sick and the reason people are struggling and the reason people are dying because they're not discerning what the body is for. And that's what I feel with church today. Hey, I think the reason people are sick and the reason people are weak and the reason people are dying is because we don't know what the bread is for. Because we've divorced the two and we've made the two one and it's all this about justification. But Paul's saying, no, no, no. The body is for wholeness and for healing. There's a bread that heals. Jesus just didn't die to save us. Jesus died to heal us. Jesus died to deliver us from every part of the curse of sin, from every part of the curse of death. And it starts with our bodies. Um, most of you know I've got this thing going on. And... Um, if you remember when we started this series four weeks ago, really, uh, I, I showed you that I, I couldn't really walk and I'd been disguising it. Um, but, but I walked across the stage and it kind of looked like someone with cerebral palsy because I have a herniation that's pressed into the ligaments of my spinal cord and it's cutting off communication from my brain to the muscles in my legs and my arms. And so I said, I'm going to walk for you. And that weekend, that Saturday night, now I knew this. Well, I was preaching that night and I felt like, God, I'm, a, I'm going after healing. And we all want instantaneous healing. But sometimes healing's a process. And the, body's, the doctors told me my body can't heal itself. In fact, it said it would take nearly a year to even tell if my body had improved at all. And I went home that night and I told you, we're going to start taking communion. We're going to discern the Lord's body. We're going to take the body of the Lord. And we took it that Saturday night that when we started this series. And the next morning, I, I still had problems walking. I walked for that service too, and it still looked pretty rough. But I felt a little better. Well, we've been on this journey now for four weeks. And I don't have an MRI to say I'm healed. I still have some weird symptoms. But if I wanted to, I can move around. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of things going on. First of all, I've got a ton of people praying for me. We're praying. I just felt like I, I can do surgery. I don't, I'm, I'm not against doctors or surgery. I've said that. I believe God he heals naturally, medically, and, and supernaturally or, or miraculously. But I felt like God wanted me to walk some things out. I felt like it's an attack of the enemy. I still feel like it's an attack of the enemy. And I still feel like God heals. And it's not even about whether I have surgery or not. That's not what it's about. It's about what God does and pressing into him. And I've still, I'm still not 100%. I'm still a good distance away. But I can move around. I can go up and down stairs. Right? I sleep really good at night. I'm not in any pain. I've had three doctors try to give me pain meds. I'm like, I'm not in pain. Why would I need medicine? And they're kind of like, why aren't you in pain? I don't know. But I'm not in pain. I get a little sore and stiff, but that's about it. To me, the turning point, and this is why I'm teaching this, to me, the turning point was not just pressing into God freely, not just being prayed. Uh, people pray for me. I'll let anybody who wants to pray for me pray for me. I feel like every time pray, somebody prays for me, I just get better. I take it like it's vitamins or like it's antibiotics or something. I just, you know, 
I came yesterday morning. We had prayer at the church at 9 a.m. on Saturday. I came with that group. And they said, can we pray for you? I'd love for you to pray for me. feel like I get better. But here's, here's what I'm saying. Is to me, I could tell the difference when I started taking communion. I could take it. And, and when I, I say, okay, God, this is the body for healing. And I can't put the body of the Messiah that was broken for my healing into my body without something happening. And so we just started doing it. And so I want us to take communion today as a family. I'm going to ask the ushers to come and they're going to serve us communion. You can just stay seated. They're going to move around. It'll help them to serve us more quickly if, if we stay seated. But I believe, I believe, um, there was a man named Smith Wigglesworth. And if, if it, a lot of preachers know who he is, a lot of people don't. He has a really interesting uh, biography. But he was someone God used in, in, um, in uh, Europe years and years ago in England, years and years ago. God raised him up and he did miracles in his ministry. And uh, as the story goes, his wife had passed away, a lot of his friends had passed away, and he was at a friend's funeral. It's probably one of his last friends that was living at his friend's funeral. And the story goes, he went up to the casket to say goodbye to his friend and died. He wasn't sick, he just died. They had a doctor um, do an examination of his body, and he said, I've never seen such a, a, a great specimen of health, even though I think he was in his 70s or 80s. He said he just looked so healthy, they couldn't find a cause of death. They finally determined that he had gotten to the ca- casket and just asked God to take him too. Because there was nothing wrong with his body. In fact, it was very, very healthy. And as they talked about that, they realized that Smith Wigglesworth would take the Lord's Supper every morning. Every morning. And they said that must have been why he was in such great health. Now, he believes something that I'm trying to get us to believe. And that is that the blood is for justification, but the body is for healing and wholeness. And Jesus really judged sickness and disease on the same cross that he judged sin on. And if we want, as, as we take of the Lord's Supper, if we realize and we rightly discern the Lord's body, there's a supernatural thing that happens where we literally take health into our bodies. And so I, I believe today that if you need healing in your body, then you need to understand what you're holding in your hand is God's provision for healing, just like what you're holding in your other hand is God's provision for sin. And you're literally going to take the health, the healing bread into your body. And when you put Jesus in your body, he works. He's a great physician. And he works. And so I want us to take this together today. And if you are struggling in your body with something, I want you to put faith with what you're holding and believe that God can begin a work. And then I'd encourage you, take communion every day. Take the Lord's Supper every day. Part of your devotional time. Part of your family time, however that works out. Take every day and watch God begin to work in your body because I believe he will. 
Will you stand with me and we're going to take this together?